This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. Good morning, Jan. A full house again. Uh, Isn't it delightful? It's wonderful. You better get started. I should too. And I'm going to talk about chocolate boxes to start off with. Because in a chocolate box, you get chocolates with a mixture of hard, soft and chewy centres. And with a book of short stories, there's also an intriguing mix. Josephine Rowe returns to Published or Not. Welcome back. Thanks for having me, Jan. By the mixture of settings, it would appear that over the last years you've been travelling the world, Josephine. Yes, there's been a bit of travelling. There's been some long stints of living in other places as well, but that, I think, is is definitely reflected in the collection. Well, with some of the stories, there is that link back to Australia, Mm -hmm. but with others, it's a sense of discovery of actually Mm. where the story is going to take place, which takes the readers and, of course, your characters from America to Canada to Buenos Aires, even to the Nullarbor. (laughs) It's quite a mixture. Right. The surprise isn't just where the stories take us, it's how the stories unfold. The first is called Glisk. And you won the Elizabeth Jolly short story competition with this one. Oh, that's right, in 2016. Yes. So has it been published somewhere else as well? Um, it was, well, it was, no, it was published through uh, the Australian Book Review. Uh, I think it's going to be up in um, in America on electric literature. But no, it's uh, it's in the book. Mm, yeah. But it's in the book. It's and in it's the our book. First it kicks story. it off. Mm-hmm. A glisk, a heartbeat, and... Good things and bad things can happen in a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. Uh, before we actually find out what is in that glisk, you give us the most incredible family remembrance of an, a family enjoying a biluminous... <laughs> Visiting a swarm of phytoplankton? Yes, <laughs> yes thank you. And, and so we have this, this family trekking through the water mm-hmm. and the older brother what did he do with his little sister oh he was towing her along on a on a raft that broke apart and uh when it broke apart he carried her on his shoulders yeah. so, so he, he really has got this beautiful beautiful sense of responsibility that we see very very early on but then ah, caring older brother who is either a careless idiot at best or a murderer at worst so he's just returned after six years. And I'm going to get Josephine Rowe to just read a little bit about something I think in Australia we often see. Suddenly the crosses planted at the shoulder of the highway do not stand for two tiny girls and their singing teacher mother. They stand for small town intolerance, grudges born longer than is fair or necessary, nourished by the kind of rural oxygen a larger city would have starved them of. Mm. So uh, the brother, the older brother, returns after six years and what happens then is is um, quite something. Anyway, the narrator of this story is his brother, mm-hmm. not his sister. No. Was there a reason why you made it a brother? Oh, my goodness. Uh, I can't. I, I think a lot of my narrators are a male uh, or have lives that are very different to yeah. mine. And, and I think in this, the instance with this story, I was interested in in layers of sibling rivalry, which often can be more explicit between uh, the same gender 
Um, and in the case of Ralph and uh, in Finn, they're, they're half-brothers, so they're, it's a mixed-race family as well. No, so. I saw it differently than that. Mm-hmm. I saw it that brothers probably didn't emote this mm-hmm. much. They mm-hmm. watched sure. rather than brought it out. And that's what I got out of that one, uh-huh. the watching. Anyway, That's a fair take. In the next story, the real, uh, real life, the narrator is a uni dropout and she is described as a wholesome-looking girl mm-hmm. who met Jodie possibly doing a scam. You know, he, he wanted a wholesome-looking girl. Right. And now Jodie's come back into her life. Um, he'd, had it, he'd had it with Louisiana tossing marshmallows at tame alligators to distract whiny tourist children. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's got to be a reason to go into Canada. Right, into the, <laughs> into the thick of a polar vortex. I don't know. <laughs> I, I wouldn't make the same decision as Jodie did. <laughs> And uh, there's a lot of decisions to be made in this book, but not by Jody because his girlfriend knows that he's that there's people you can have but not keep, mm-hmm. and Jody's one of them. Pregnancy is a connection to another story, and this is anything remarkable. And you're mm. saying this is the last of the stories that got into the book, right? Uh, so I think over I wrote the collection over about seven years, and uh, and some of the stories, Glisk, which you mentioned, um, some of the uh, some of the longer stories set in Australia uh, started out maybe in 2012 or 2013. And I've been sort of, I was bothering them right up until print. But anything remarkable came came together quite quickly. And I think in a bit of a head full of steam and smoke around the time of the long overdue marriage amendment in Australia. And a very important question. Are you using your body for anything remarkable? remarkable. Mm-hmm. Mm, so a linking of pregnancies between those two stories. <laughs> Another connection between stories would be grief. And Mm. here I'm going to ask Josephine Rowe to read again from page 60. And this, this is an image that stayed with me for a long time after I finished. She has come here to howl, to howl unhindered. You know this before she opens her lungs and begins. The sound agonied, agonizing. And though you cannot know the root of the anguish, it is familiar to you. From the town, through the trees, the sound of bells. She has timed her bawling to the church bells, meaning, perhaps, that she has done this before, done this often. For how long has she done this? Months? Years? Her hood is up, but you cannot, she cannot be much older than your wife, than yourself. She has smooth, slender hands that are taut now. Fingers splayed as though they too are emitting sound or light. Terrible force. Look, this grief. um, uh, Such intense grief. And for two of the stories, only isolation will help. Knowing no one, so no one knows your story. Where has Sevi moved herself to? Oh, uh, well, I won't name the North American town, but she has come from... uh, She has come from... 
France uh, after a particularly traumatic incident that we won't say because no. it will spoil no. the story and curled herself into the smallest possible place she can find. And she's got money, but this place has no luxury. No. And she, mm-hmm. doesn't, she doesn't want to buy food. She doesn't want to go out. She mm-hmm. doesn't want to do anything. And... The, the name of the short story is? Uh, Chavez, which and is the name of the, the dog that she, um, a neighbour's dog that she looks after who kind of tows her a, out of oh, her. It's the responsibility of the dog mm. that brings perhaps life mm-hmm. to Chavez. And then there's Nisha who, well, she's um, moved into a small cleared space. Right. Where is this small cleared oh, space? Oh, so this is set in uh, in Newfoundland, actually, in Canada. For anybody who doesn't really know, it's sort of like the Tasmania of Canada. It's a similar size, a similar populace. It's uh, an island off to the east. And uh, this particular place is very remote access, is only accessible for certain parts of the year when the, when the water is... Uh, across the pond is frozen and can actually be driven over with an ATV. Mm. Well, it may be a feral cat here with kittens that helps with her grief. But what what was she going to do with all the baby things that she had? I think that, I think uh, we could leave that to oh, the reader. Okay. That comes well, here. there's mm-hmm. the inability to throw things away mm-hmm. that we saw in sinkers. Right, okay, yes, yeah, true. Yes, um, there was the mother and son who had... On the mother's birthday, every year had r- gone for a row on a lake mm-hmm. and thrown cake crumbs mm-hmm. from a bought cake uh, uh, into the water. Mm-hmm. It was, that was a really nice thing. So love, there was lovely descriptions in this short story about the viscosity of the mm-hmm. water. But what was underneath the water? Uh, so that's sort of, uh, it's not one of the particular towns, but I was thinking a lot at the time about places uh, that are very sort of vivid in the Australian psyche that have become quite iconic and a lot of the submerged towns for the Snowy Mountain hydroelectric Um, and then with with severe weather changes these towns that have been submerged are emerging again and we're kind of seeing what's under there. Uh, Yes. And even the stories about the how the uh, at certain times the the church bell still rings, you know. That's a bit of a right. Myth well, that, that that's yeah. that's a kind of long-standing Australian yeah, myth, I think, and I wanted to play mm-hmm. with that a little bit. Well, in relief to all the grief, there is bemusement, even from the title, "The Once Drowned Man." We are just as confused as the taxi mm-hmm. driver. Where does where does he want to go? He wants to go to Canada. Yep, so it's, <laughs> and he wants to go there to thank a man who saved his life. Ostensibly, yeah. That isn't exactly the reason we find it, yes. um, yeah. In the sparse conversation they have on this long drive, mm-hmm. there's serendipity that brings in conversations and remembrances, like the circus, driving past the circus. Mm-hmm. They both have stories that they, the, the passenger and the driver, relate about the the circus and this driver look i love this little click into technology that you sort of say sure the driver is talking about all of these um it's 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 very hard to verify the grandiose claims of strangers a quote from the book 
Our phones were just for phoning then, and it was safe to presume most people were full of smoke, but safer still not to call them in on it. Uh, uh, call right. them on it. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I think that that's pretty clever. So in that story, there's a, it's a female taxi driver who is who's in a cab with this man for a number of hours, and so I just wanted to kind of let the two of them talk and the uneasiness and the guardedness that was there, but also the sort of... Um, our man talks about good faith a lot in that story, so it's a sort of contrast of those two things. Yeah, this man also mm. talks about the nicest thing that somebody has said to him, and I'm sure it wouldn't have been a dentist saying that you had an uncomplicated mouth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm looking for a bigger compliment than that. Another story is the only connection a couple now have is the porno movies that they <laughs> made when they were very much younger. And the, a lovely line by Josephine Rowe that all the – she's feeling that she's just wasted a life, of course. All the lives she wasn't living lined up uselessly. Tacky snow globes from places she had never been, places – where it doesn't even snow. Mm-hmm. And you get these, um, you know, it, it was clever. So there's stunning writing about how disasters do not choose people and the difference between silence and hush. I thought that was beautiful. So Josephine Rowe in her collection is uh, called Here Until August. We didn't have anything about August much in the book at all. We had summer ah, and winter. It's interesting that you call that. Uh, it, it previously had a different title. Um, what is the what's the quickest way I can explain this? I think of August as being um, uh, well. I, I when I think of August, I have sort of two versions of it, which is the North American. Uh, Late summer, time of plenty, and then I have the very insular, interior, Melbourne August on my mind as well. So it's sort of about so it moves that. through hemispheres, mm-hmm. just as the story did. It's a short story collection of departures and heartbreak with characters on the verge of pivotal decisions. And, you know, you sort of think, oh, what's going to happen? Which is exactly what a good short story should have, should do to you. So thank you very much, Josephine Rowe, with Here Until August from Black Ink. Thank, Thank you, Jan. you, Jan. And Josephine has travelled, but travelling overseas can be fraught with danger. But when you are a veteran of Vietnam, you have extraordinary resources at your disposal. Now, veteran Barry Hurd provides us with an insight into just how canny these old-timers can be in the novel The Operator. So, Barry, welcome back to 3CR. Thank you very much. Now, I first interviewed you about your memoir, Well Done, Those Men, that looked at your time as a conscript in Vietnam. And in many ways, this novel is a progression, don't you think? Oh, no question. And um, part of what's in the current novel is um, things that I had to use as a radio operator in the jungle in Vietnam, and particularly in extreme danger or... um, an emergency where we had to break the rules. And well, you've got some first-hand information, as you say. Now, your central character is Wally Flanagan, who's a veteran, and he's served as a radio operator or a signalman with the 7th RAR. Yes. Now, the 7th RAR actually did exist, and they're known 
as the pigs. Would you care to tell us how they got that moniker? Well, I could say that pigs are very good looking and we all are, but that's not true. What is true is that um, before we went to Vietnam and I hadn't been long in the army as a conscript, our battalion had a 50th anniversary birthday party and they had a major, enormous birthday cake in this hall and there's about 800 of us in there. And I had a few drinks and one thing led to another and then we had a cake fight. We were throwing pieces of cake at one another and it got out of hand. And the next day the commander of the battalion stood up and said, you are nothing but a pack of pigs. And that stuck. And so we remain, normally you're a lion or you're some heroic emblem, but we're just a pack of pigs. And it's always stuck with us. But it's very Australian. It is, yeah. And we have a pig for tie. We have bags with a pig on it. and To own the moniker, you know, <laughs> as, as Australians do. So that's true. The other thing that's true is, as a radio operator, you actually had to develop codes uh, yes. in order to sort of communicate messages. There was all sorts of things going on. Can you explain briefly and succinctly, I don't know how easy this is going to be, rum and coke, fraggles, walk the dog, in other words, the, the means by which you yeah, sure. worked out the codes? Well, as a normal radio operator in the jungle, there was three priorities. One, silence. Only speak if it's an emergency. Two is you spoke in code, but you had a, a little code book that you could help. And the third thing, which sounds bizarre, but it was my biggest struggle, struggle was to remain calm and precise, particularly if you're under fire. But occasionally, after we'd been there a short time in Vietnam, and I'm talking 1967, the enemy would not only jam our radios, they would try and intercept and work out the codes and and also identify where we were. And that meant our radio was no longer useful, only for short, brief moments. And so we decided, not long after I'd been in Vietnam with all the senior radio, there's only three others, that we had to work out secret words. And we'd just say a word, and that would alert them to something else, and they would write down the something else. And from that, I would then give a phonetic message in the phonetic alphabet, and they would change to a certain frequency, which was all safe. But you mentioned the words. Um, fraggles was a dog. It meant, if I said fraggles, it meant walk the dog. If I said drink, it meant rum and coke. If I said uh, I, I had a late breakfast, that meant cornflakes. Every one of those sentences or words, I should say, um, walk the dog, uh, etc., cornflakes, are all ten letters long and they're all different. Now, the thing is, when I said cornflakes or uh, another word was Darcy, it meant blacksmith, I would say Darcy's late, and that meant the letter L in blacksmith, B-L, would be number one. So I'd go Bravo Lima, and I could talk back in the phonetic alphabet and tell them what frequency. I had 12 to 15 seconds to do that. And uh, every time we went in the jungle, we'd only go in for five days, the four of us had to get together and work out four secret code words. They had to change every time we went out. And so if you ask me, like, you, you know, the way we were able to communicate in the jungle was so awesome because it actually got us out of... A lot of trouble. Extreme very inventive. Yes. And um, very, well, in dangerous situations. Okay, so we've got this background where these things actually happen. Seventh RAR exists. Uh, the coding that you've put into this book, 
Now we get to the actual story. Wally's gone overseas um, for a visit to Indonesia. He's going to see the plant that only flowers once every 10 years or something. And he's kidnapped. Now, my question, if everything else is true, how true is this notion of kidnapping? Uh, That's a very awkward question. Um, It's partially true because uh, myself and my Vietnam veteran mates, without saying too much, um, have done a lot with the books that I've had published. They've been very successful and we've done a lot of fundraising and involved schools and what have you. And so, um, yes, there was an incident where one of our mates got into enormous trouble and we were able to communicate um, via Facebook using these unusual words that no one picked up on because the people involved with the uh, incident were all computer hackers from Indonesia. And so it was extremely dangerous. And um, we were able to communicate in a way whereby um, we found out where he was, etc., etc. And then we set up a scheme to get him out. And that's what's in the book, the same. So it's a real... No, no. Well, based on on a real story and a real incident, which then raises all sorts of interesting concerns because how did these kidnappers operate? How did they find out information about people? They had, in the um, background of their business, they had some geniuses operating computers. And to give you a classic example, I live in Bensdale and the local tourist agent there is Cooper's. Now, they'd... If I was going overseas, what do you give your tourist office? You give them your passport, passport, your date of birth, your qualifications, your medical health, your address. You give them everything. And so the computer hacker says, thank you very much. And what they would look for, and I've looked into a lot of this, apart from what we had initially did happen, but what I found was that they had all they needed except... Who was the person going? So if I was going on my own, which I've got Wally, and they could just kidnap him, no one would know. Mm. They could just take him. Now, here's the intriguing thing. You've got, in this digital age, people handing over information and and just basically uh, publishing about themselves all the time. And yet your role as a radio operator was one of protecting information. So you get this intriguing contrast... The novel then relies on deception. So um, there's a bit of a deception that takes place fairly early on in the novel. We have one of the heroic characters who was a local, Diab, who's been an Indonesian student in Melbourne, and he's saved by one of the pigs on a train, just in a separate incident yes. Yes. Um, where uh, some the, this pig basically uh, protects him uh, from being bullied on the train. Listen carefully, you fellas. I'm a plainclothes detective. I've just turned on all the video cameras in this carriage and taken your photos. I've also texted operations saying you might mess everything up. You see, I'm on this train waiting for a, ver- for a very nasty criminal to get on. We have cops hidden in every carriage waiting for my message. Do you hear me? Now walk away, go into another carriage and sit very quietly. Any trouble and you will spend several nights behind bars for drinking on the train of nothing else. Now go. So here's a little just scenario of deception. That's the first thing which comes back, and Diab actually helps Wally in the story, yeah, yeah. based on that incident in many ways. But also, 
these uh, criminals use deception as well. What are they going to do to Wally? And how, how does that work? Well, they're going to um, they drug him for a start. After they kidnap him, they, they, uh, the way that system works, and it was unfortunately quite a big industry in Jakarta, is they are connected to taxis and they pick up Wally in an exclusive taxi and they are supposedly taking him to the train station. That's where he wanted to go when he ordered the taxi. But they took him to their house um, at, and at gunpoint. They drugged him and um, then dressed him as a Lord Baron, uh, a drug dealer, and put him on a train and then they videoed him um, dealing in drugs. And that video then went back to the computer hackers and they then sent it to Wally's family and said, we want $25,000 or... We hand Wally over to the Indonesian police. He'll be jailed for life or shot. Yeah. So a very sort of uh, involved yep. deception. Yep. But the other interesting thing is, and I can't give this away, is that there's a lovely deception at the end of the novel. And, of course, the listener's going to have to read the book for themselves. <laughs> but, again, uh, there's an intriguing connection here because you've got uh, that sort of deception going on, but... Your role was in terms of giving precise information as a radio mm. operator. That's right. So two sides to uh, your yeah. life there, Barry. Yeah. One of the interesting things is um, as a radio operator, we were not allowed to write anything down. And when I did my initial training in Australia before I went to Vietnam, one of the final tests I had is they read out 50 telephone numbers. And we had to write down as many as we could in 25 minutes. I wrote down 42 correct. The worst of the 16 guys was 38. And so that was after carrying a radio for six months and not being a... And what it means is that people don't realise what you can do with your brain. And the classic example is I spoke to a truck driver years ago. He used to drive from Brisbane to Perth. And it took him four hours to name every street, but he named every street in a row that he could drive down. And that's what your brain can do. And the, sorry to go on, but I left school very young, year 10. But when I came back from Vietnam and was a, nothing but trouble, and I finally went to uni, I couldn't get in. I had no qualifications. They let me have an IQ test. And my IQ was 138. That's no. higher than Einstein had nothing to do with my brain. It had to do with what my brain could remember and do because I read out five pages of a person driving through suburbs in Melbourne and we had to write down the answers. And I thought they were joking. I thought that's easy. But this, <laughs> this then, what, what you've done here is you've provided a fascinating backdrop which informs this novel in terms yeah. of what the vets can do, yeah. their ability to learn, their camaraderie, which leads me to sort of the final area much has been made of the trauma that the vets have gone through, but you've contextualised a lot of that experience um, in a way that provides a form of affirmation. It does. Yeah. What, what has happened to us, because initially as young men coming home from Vietnam, we really did suffer very badly, not just from the war experience, just everything, the media, the lot. And then... All of us went into all of us went into total isolation, seclusion, etc. And uh, we never got together until uh, nineteen ninety two. That's home in nineteen sixty seven. Nineteen ninety two was our first ever reunion. 
But what happened, apart from the fact it was a shock to see the health of a lot of the guys, and unfortunately there was a very high suicide rate after that reunion, but what has happened since is that we've been very involved in, I don't know, giving to others, giving of ourselves to people, and in a big way in some cases. And it's our way of healing our hurt, our, our inner pain, and giving back trying to give back what we've done and uh, um, it fascinates me that um, Indonesian people when I meet them they say oh Oktelai oh you love you Oktelai means red rat which means a red kangaroo which means I'm an Australian but it's interesting that all this time later we've all changed and we're very very close we're very honest we're very close and uh, I don't know I'm sort of sound like I'm praising myself I'm not meaning to but you've provided in the novel a, a contextualisation, a moving forward, yep. if I can put it that way, of yep. the experience. So rather than the focus, which has been traditionally on yes. the trauma, yep. it's moving forward. Do you think there's a change occurring at all? Or oh, not? no question. No question. That's with the, the Vietnam veterans in particular. There's been, we've been very involved in a couple of fantastic funds. Yeah, they've been very, very powerful and very enlightening and, and sort of warming us and that sort of thing. But the other side of it is I don't want to get on a horse or a high chair, but war never changes. What it does to soldiers never changes. It's just bloody stupid, put it simple. The novel is called The Operators. The author is Barry Hurd. It's from Scribe, and it's a wonderful read. Jen? And, of course, I was speaking with Josephine Rowe with her book Here Until August from Blacking. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.